here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. This is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. I am Benjamin Day. And I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And today we are taking uh, a little field trip to the Netherlands uh, to talk about what the Dutch healthcare system looks like. You know, as we get closer to winning Medicare for All, which has already been won in the court of public opinion, of course, but um, we're seeing new arguments crop up explicitly that, you know, Medicare for All is actually just one of many ways that we can guarantee universal coverage to everyone and that dismantling our for-profit employer-based health insurance isn't, you know, actually necessary to ensuring, you know, health, health insurance equality. Uh, the position that healthcare now takes, of course, is that this is not true. A publicly funded uh, and administered system is the only way to equitably deliver healthcare. But proponents of, you know, existing corporate healthcare, the existing corporate healthcare system, will say, "Well, you know, look at a system like the Netherlands, which is run by private insurance companies." Um, Vox earlier this year published an article about the Netherlands healthcare system titled, you know, the Netherlands has universal health insurance and it's all private. And I felt that description was, was glossing over some important differences, if not just outright wrong. Um, ben, do you want to introduce our guest? Yes. And I, I can't wait until we can actually take a field trip to the Netherlands. I mean, <laughs> hopefully sometime in the next year, that will be possible again. Yeah. This um, is the best you're getting for now. We are so uh, grateful to have as our guest here, uh, a, a professor, Kika Okma, I hope I pronounced that okay. Um, and uh, <laughs> please just tell us a little bit about, I mean, first of all, how did you end up getting into uh, studying healthcare systems and health policy? And uh, tell us a little bit about your career and the, the type of work you've, you've done. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm really happy that there's sort of some organization in, in the US that shows interest in anything across the borders, that, that, that the rest of the world seems to disappeared in the last decade <laughs> and it's still maybe useful for us. Um, as to my own career, I've been, um, I, start, I started, I was a student in economics, macroeconomics. I didn't quite know what to do. I was hanging around the university for years and then I stepped and became over to government. I became a government employee for two and a half decades. I worked with the treasury, with the foreign affairs department, with the um, commerce department, and I saw being zigzagging around in different government agencies. I worked for the World Bank for a couple of years in the early 80s, and a monetary fund, uh, went back to Europe. So I, I've been go- going around in public um, organizations for two and a half decades. And then my last job in Holland, the last 10 years, I accidentally, um, someone had referred to me that thought position, I came, uh, I was hired by the health department. Wasn't because of my background, I had no medical background, I had no knowledge whatsoever about healthcare. So I had to read up, I had to catch up a lot the first couple of years. And healthcare, I really um, realized it's, it's one of the most interesting, one of the most complicating, challenging uh, parts of, of public life. Because more than any other um, department, uh, defense or, or uh, education or social matters, it has both the issues themselves, but it, the medical issues are fraught with 
ethical issues, media exp expenditure, complicated stuff. It also has many more organized and sometimes very well organized stakeholders that all can thwart and, and block uh, government uh, proposals. And it is, it is a matter of life and death. You hear the headlines every day. So it's, it's, it's exciting to work in healthcare. And I was hired um, at a time to be the executive um, secretary of the committee to implement the latest round of um, report, uh, um, reforms proposed in the late 1980s. You can see that I'm already a little bit older now. Um, <laughs> so we were struggling then how to that report that, that was talking about more competition, risk bearing sick funds, level playing field between the private and public um, industry. So all the issues we're talking now, you were just mentioned, um, oh, how, to do, how to translate that into legislation. And we made an enormous schedule of all the legislative steps we needed to do. Um, and in a couple of first couple of years, things seemed to be doing fine. The, 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 the report was discussed. It was an enormous controversial report. But in the end, there was enough political uh, uh, support. We started implementing two or three years later. All of a sudden, it turned out all the seemingly appeased uh, stakeholders didn't like it so much. Uh, opposition resurfaced. Political um, support eroded. And it was completely blocked. In 1991, I remember I visited Washington uh, with two of my colleagues, and I, we were invited to the White House to talk to um, to the, the, the health czar of, of Clinton, Ira Mekasiner, um, I think, yeah. And he, um, we were commiserating how both the Clinton plans had tanked, and at the same time the Dutch plans had tanked, for different reasons. But that was, so in any case, I worked my way to all those different fields, and after 10 years working at the health department, I decided I might as well write a PhD, because Holland's one of the few countries where you don't have to go back to school for a PhD. You just have to write, when you've renovated, you just have to write a book. You find a friendly professor, <laughs> write a book. So I wrote my book, did my PhD, and that triggered an academic career. I hadn't planned either, and I was invited by universities in Canada, at UBC in Vancouver, at Queen's University, and McGill later. And in the, in the United States, I then, another 10 years later, I met my now American husband, and um, so I started a new life in this country. I'm now also American citizen, so I'm a citizen in both continents. And I have been teaching at um, here in, in Weil, with Weil, Cornell Weil and, and at NYU and Columbia, different places, always with a sort of international perspective, comparing what is going on in different countries. I always find it very exciting to look at other things but yourself. It helps to better understand what's happening in your own country. I suppose yeah. you're qualified to talk about the Dutch healthcare <laughs> system with us <laughs> and how it compares to the U.S. Yeah. 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 And I agree with that. I actually, I'm married to a Danish man and I lived in Copenhagen for three years and oh, I experienced a true socialized yeah. health insurance system and that definitely put my own health healthcare system in perspective. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe we should just jump right into the Dutch system. Can you tell us a little bit about... Um, the major reforms uh, that happened in the Dutch uh, healthcare system that sort of ended where we are today and what it sort of looks like, you know, before. I know that there was a major reform in 2006. Um, if you could just sort of like lay out what had precipitated that reform and what yeah. it looks like now. Well, let's briefly summarize what is happening now currently. Currently, 100% of the population 
is under the uh, 100% of the legal residents, I should hasten to add, are obliged to sign up with a health insurer of its own, of, of her or his own choice. The payment, 90% of the payment, it's, uh, is 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 channeled through the tax system. So the government, the employer, uh, withholds uh, earmarked taxes and is channeled to the health insurers. And less than 10% is paid by the insured directly to the insurance company. So you can choose your insurance. You have to pay about 100 euros, 120 dollars per month, and then you, everyone has the same uh, basic package of entitlements and the same access to healthcare. And there's a little bit of in the margin additional supplemental insurance you can take for things that are not really covered, like dental care for adults and, and some eyewear. I mean, that's that's not very important. And the number of people who've taken that additional insurance has gone down because people think it's a lot of money, it's not worth it. But anyway, mostly. Now, so it sounds very simple. The second the part, whether the insurers who are managing that, that insurance, whether they are private or public, that's a very interesting question because that question has never been answered. And it's an interesting one because um, when the government introduced the plan in 2006, it first, the then coalition government, it first um, presented the plan as a private insurance. But then some people um, at the health department, and I worked at the health department then, said, Minister, um, you can't do that. Because the Treaty of Europe, the European Union, the Council of Europe, the International Labour Organization, all those organizations, they require that member states cover their member uh, populations at least for two-thirds with uh, mm -hmm. social health insurance, mm -hmm. not private health insurance. So you can't do that. We are not going to step out to you if you, oh, oops, uh, the minister said, but you know what, we'll just call it uh, social insurance. And they, we went on with that. Now, the problem is, is, is that um, it's not just semantic. The social insurance are completely different in a different legislative regime as private insurance. If it's social insurance, governments can interfere, can do stuff, but you cannot at the same time have competition and consumer choice and free negotiation over prices and quantities between insurance and hospitals, say. If it's private, you can choose to have a private system, but then uh, you, as a government, it's, it's part of competition law. And governments cannot interfere in the price setting of private health insurance or in, in prescribing what they're doing, as we're doing now. So uh, that's and the question. The only authority who can um, judge on that question is the European Court of Justice. And it never, there has not never been a case. As soon as there will be a citizen or organization going to Luxembourg to the court, uh, if I'd lived in, in Europe, I would do that perhaps, um, then the court would have to decide. But it hasn't decided. But anyway, so it's 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 a bit, it quacks like a duck and it, it swims like a swan. It's, it, uh, <laughs> it's not quite private. Not very, that's mm -hmm. the insurance, yeah. about 40 independent insurance, but actually they're all in the hands of four private big insurance conglomerates that are private profit makers. So mm -hmm. is it private, is it public? No one knows. <laughs> Right. And I, you know, when I first learned about the Dutch health insurance system, I saw that the premiums were only like a hundred euro or just over a hundred yeah. euro. Yeah. And that like the max deductible is like 500 euro. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I was yeah. like, how did the Dutch system get their premiums down? So like what incredible cost control they do. And of course, the reason that it's so low is because it's massively subsidized by the public sector, which is yeah. sort of... Yeah, well, funded your, rather by the public what's sector. Your, what's your words here? I mean, there are two things. That's um, the fact that you channel uh, money to the tax system is not necessarily subsidization. 
Mm-hmm. I think there's a difference there. I mean, earmark taxes is like you're paying a contribution, but your channel, if you, it's it's a separate account, it's, it's channeled to insurance. So it's more the, the income-related contributions, as in the, all the other social insurance system, like our uh, Medicare in the US, for example, our social security, you, the, your employer withholds taxes and it's channeled through the tax system. That doesn't make it direct. You can't call the tax subsidy. Right. So rather than subsidize, it's really yeah. funded. But you're right in noting that uh, the best, the biggest share of all the payments in Holland go through uh, that income-related premium system. So it's not as if all of a sudden we pay, pay fat, flat rate premiums. And this $100 uh, dollars or $120 a month seems trivial in the eyes of the U.S., but as I'll, I'll say a little bit later, it's, it has caused major problems in Holland. I'll, I'll tell you about it. I want to also come back to one of your remarks about socialized healthcare in um, in, in Europe. I think even in Scandinavia, I think you that's a real dis, dis, misnomer. It's misleading and it's not a, it's a, it's a false label. You can say we have largely across Europe socialized the health financing, but we have not largely socialized healthcare. The provision. Most countries have either a mix of public and private hospitals or mostly independent hospitals with mostly not-for-profit independent hospitals. Mm-hmm. But there is, mm-hmm. there is public financing. So that's, that's important because it gives a different meaning to the, the, to the notion of socialized medicine. And, and I think, in fact, there are about two countries in the whole world that really have socialized medicine, and that's Cuba mm-hmm. and North Korea. The, all the other nations in the world yeah. have this mix of, um, so that's, that's why that label is not mm-hmm. helpful. Oh, yeah, we have the same thing here where, you know, especially dating back to the 1950s when, uh, you know, not universal healthcare was attacked as socialist. Um, yeah. It was yeah. labeled as, yeah. mislabeled as socialized medicine yeah. as a way Even of in red, the 1930s, Same in the 1930s. Yeah. Roosevelt, he also was the same, same debate. So it's, 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 uh, you have to critically be very critical about it. I mean, it always drives me nuts when my friends talk about socialized uh, medicine. I say, you don't know what you're talking about. But it's more <laughs> the annoyance that it has become so effective as a weapon in the policy debate. And we have to be careful about that, I think. Mm-hmm. So to add um, additional confusion and intrigue, so I, I think part of the problem problem that uh, we in the U.S. who only have familiarity with the U.S. system have in wrapping our heads around a Dutch-like system is we don't have many systems or provisions in the United States where um, there is a private entity who is delivering it, or at least a pseudo-private entity who's delivering the product or the service, um, but it's mostly paid for through the tax, tax system. Wait so it's Yes. You're wrong there. Okay. Um, if you could briefly describe the um, American system as a, it's, fra- it's complicated, it's very fragmented. It's well, you're true. There is a lot of public well, financing yeah. of the and, American yeah, I mean, system. Yeah, it's, it's fragmented. I mean, you have the Medicare, um, over 50% of the population, it's social health insurance. Medicaid, it's uh, tax financed, but it's provided often by private hospitals. Local, the state uh, authorities negotiate with hospitals and clinics and nursing homes sometimes. Um, Then you have the Veterans Administration, America's socialized medicine, public hospitals, public finance, and uh, Indian services or prison services. I mean, there's a lot of population, little smaller groups. And then we have, after the uh, Obamacare, the ACA, um, the the private insurance, the group insurance we all have through our uh, employee, 
employer, the employee employment-based insurances that used to be real private group practices often, but they have been transformed in something that is has been looking a little bit more like social insurance. You need the mandate to insure the 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 that fell through, but that idea or the the prohibition to to risk rate premiums to accept everyone all those elements are the fundamentals of social insurance so our private insurance has already moved quite a bit towards um, social insurance mm -hmm. so before throwing it overboard because it's sort of profit making uh, um, i think maybe we have to look at that more carefully the, mm -hmm. the insurances in in europe also started as based of uh, as employment based arrangements so let me ask you some other questions about the Dutch insurance systems. Because um, I, I also wonder, just as this term private is kind of a loaded term and it's, mm -hmm. it doesn't quite capture the complexity of what's going on, even the term insurer is a little complicated, right? Yeah. It, I think what we would consider an insurer here would not be considered an insurer in, de in, in the Dutch system. Yeah. So what happens in the Dutch system if, you, if someone does not pay their premium, for example? If they default or fail to yeah, pay, yeah, that's a, that's good. There are two two different things that happened after mm -hmm. 2006. We I mean, the one thing the transition was fairly easy from this dual system for 40 percent of the population private health insurance, 60 uh, percent plus um, with social health insurance, and those two merged into this universal mandate to take out insurance. And that transition, remarkably, was fairly uh, noiseless. It went well, and the reason it was sort of successful it seemed at first um, was that all the major actors in healthcare in Holland had anticipated that legislation so insurers the private insurers had already merged with the sick funds even legally not quite but they had already done that uh, the number of uh, insurers agency whether public or private had been gone had gone down been going down dramatically it is likewise in the provision of healthcare hospitals and others start also to think, oops, uh, I have all those strong insurance conglomerates in front of me, and they started to merge. So we developed hospital systems that often um, resulted in regional monopolies or oligopolies with only a few hospitals in the region and one or two insurers. So it, that's one of the reasons why cost control was so ineffective. It's economics 101. You have a regional yeah. monopoly, bilateral monopoly, uh, demand supplies, monopoly. So, prices will go up. That happens. Yep. That simply happens. So that, that um, market concentration was one of the major unanticipated, at least for some of the people, was unanticipated. I think it was a highly anticipatory, um, but it was not anticipated by the policy designers at the time. So to clarify, if you as an individual don't pay your premium, Sorry, do you I, lose I, access to your, your health care? I mean, just well, uh, to go back to the beginning of the question. Yeah. It's, it illustrates the administrative complexity of imposing a mandate. Mm -hmm. Im, Im, Imposed mandates. We, we have mandate to wear a safety belt. We, have an, we don't have a mandate to take a, the, the, the vaccine for the virus, but, but we would like to have that. Actually, implicitly, there's law that can allow, that allow public health authorities to and impose such a mandate. We're shying away from that. But even mandates everywhere are complicated, hard to impose, and highly discriminatory. I mean, we have had since the beginning between two, two, three percent, a bit less, a bit more, but now it's between one and two percent people who are um, delinquents in payments. The non-insured has been, have, it took about 10 years to trace the non-insured and can finally get them uh, on a plan. But a delinquency, non-payment of premiums, was much harder to fight. It's still 1% of population, between 1% and 
Now, that number is trivial compared to what we have here, but politically, it's a big thing. Having 200,000 people in Holland or plus without insurance is something we don't like. It's, it's embarrassing. It's, ah. And then the government has, has tried all sorts of different things. First, they said, we're going to triple the, the, the premiums with big fines. And you have to, and that, of course, someone who is unemployed or, or whatever is not going to pay that either if the 100 euros is already too much. Second, predictably, who were the, who are, who were the uninsured young immigrants, uh, welfare recipients, uh, single parents, I mean, vulnerable groups that whatever you do will not all of a sudden behave financially uh, properly and fork over 100 plus euro uh, per month. That's very hard to make them do that. So it, it was extraordinarily complicated to chase people and make them pay. What was, what was also extraordinarily complicated and very expensive was the fact that for that $100 a month, there was a very complicated scheme of subsidies. Low-income families were given money as, um, to afford this $100 or euro per month. But in order to establish who was eligible or to establish the, the, the amount of that subsidy, um, the tax department had to hire almost 2,000 people to, to establish those two qualifications and settle the amount per month. I remember at the, for a couple of years, my brother had a, a got, was a welfare recipient before he retired, and he was getting those subsidies every month. And it was $25.75, $31.99. I mean, the, the, it was crazy every single month, and he was very precise. Every single month, he would, he would write a letter to the tax department, excuse me, you made an error. And he was always right. So there was a hilarious stream of letters illustrating that it's very difficult to do. And the, um, the idea that you're having uh, letters going back and forth about over an amount of $10, it's, you can imagine that it's, so, it's too crazy to be true. <laughs> and that um, illustrates yeah. that form of, of uh, subsidies for, for uh, premium subsidies. Yeah, Don't and the, compli okay. the complication yeah. of it as well. And I just think on like a fundamental, you know, guarantee level, just if we want to talk about the ACA as a form of social insurance, which I personally think is a little bit of a stretch, but, yep. um, uh, you know, to give you an example of what happens in the United States when someone doesn't pay their subsidy. Uh, we have an activist, Scott DeNoyer. His son was on a Medicaid plan that was administered by private insurance because, of course, there's so much of that. And um, he missed a $120 payment of his premium to his insurer. And the insurer cut off his uh, insurance for a month and a half. And during that month and a half, he needed a refill of an um, antipsychotic medication he was taking. That medication was hundreds of dollars and he couldn't afford it out of pocket and they wouldn't cover it. And so he was not able to take that medication and he ended up killing himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like that is the kind of thing yeah. that a Dutch system would never allow. <laughs> um, you, 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 you reach a very good point here too. Um, in Western Europe, but actually also in Eastern Europe, there is, I mean, you, you, can, you can say that the, the, the dominant public orientation, the value orientation of, of the, the very largest share of the populations in Europe is oriented to uh, the, the, the healthcare as a right in the sense that everyone should have access to decent healthcare. It doesn't have first class, the best, it doesn't have without any, but it has to be accessed without insurmountable financial barriers and everybody should have that. Now, how we do that, 
it varies wildly across Europe. Is the, the, the UK model of uh, tax-based financing of the National Health Service versus the continental German Bismarckian Siegfried model? That's those two are the two main ones with more independent administration. There's variety there. There's also variety in the mix of public-private ownership of hospitals, but that doesn't matter that much. It matters more what is the mechanism that would address this public concern. We would not accept um, people who are uh, elderly ladies in the street who don't have access to the hospital. So that's so strong that whatever the tinkering of the system in Holland, um, we didn't really have to be worried about that point. Even if you're not insured, you get into a hospital. Even so... Um, and that means there's an enormous pressure on governments to, if things go wrong, to jump on it immediately and start patching up. And that, uh, that occurs all the time. That's why it took so long to implement a new scheme that went so awkward. And it's nowadays why politicians in Holland do not want to talk about competition and healthcare choices and regulated competition anymore. They know it's a failure. They don't want to admit it. But publicly, it's still sort of uh, uh, consumer choice, consumer driven healthcare. No one believes that. Yeah, and I was really surprised to to learn from you that um, some of this is is really required by treaties uh, within Europe, um, yeah. and that basically governments, if they want to belong to the European Union and some of these other agreements, yeah. have no choice but to provide, uh, you know, yeah. A, yeah. That, to to fulfill those really basic moral yeah. uh, provisions yeah. that you yeah. talked about. Exactly. Um, yeah, the Council of Europe and the ILO, these are really, you're right, it's, these are moral requirements. Mm-hmm. We as decent states, as, as nations, we feel that in the European community, we, that, that these are prerequisites for a functioning uh, society, not just capitalist societies. Social insurance has nothing to do with socialism. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm riled up about that confusion, because social insurance, and if I may add a few words about the origins, came out of the late 19th century, the German politics where Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck, the chancellor then, had first unified Germany and then looked and saw there's all this rising um, labor unrest after the uh, industrial revolution that drove people to the uh, cities with the urban, dismal urban living conditions, working conditions. And as a preemptive strike, basically, basically, Bismarck, Figured, and it was very smart, he, was, uh, he figured out the notion of social insurance in case of illness and disability and old age, all those elements. Let, but, and that's also, he was not a tree-hugging, uh, a bleeding-heart socialist at all. He was a conservative politician, right. but it was a mix of uh, serious concern, moral concern, but also self-interest. Mm-hmm. If you want to shore up capitalism, you want to make it work better, make sure people don't uh, don't lose their house or their, their car insurance or whatever they, they didn't have at that time, but because of illness and make sure people can live a decent life. So that, and then he developed in healthcare, secondly, that's a very important thing. Um, he built on the existing social insurance model, the precursor of the private insurance, by the way, but that insurance model in Germany had already uh, traces that were over a thousand year old as the original form of income uh, protection scheme. Mm-hmm. The medieval guilds, for example, had you know bricklayers, the bakers, the, 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 whatever you have, the, the, the carpenters. They all, if you wanted to be a, a bricklayer, a baker, or carpenter, you had to be a member of your guilds. Mm-hmm. They would give you an education, a training, a qualification, and then you, the, if you want to settle, you had to be a member. You had to pay your dues in exchange 
You caught this income protection in case of illness or death of the breadwinner. The family was supported. That was a mutual scheme. All the bakers in the region mm. had to remember. And that, no, that, that model that carried over through the centuries, 19th century, you have the friendly societies in, 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 in Germany, the, the, the farmers' associations, the farmers' cooperatives did the same. It was all built on mutual interest. They were a pool of risk by themselves. And, and Bismarck made the additional step to make membership mm-hmm. um, m- mandatory of those sick funds, mm-hmm. but he left the administration in the hand of the existing funds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That caused that model. That the, the, the independent sick funds were insurance agencies on behalf of their members, but by mandating membership, they became bigger, bigger and their financial base was more solid so they could survive better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, none of that has to, has to do anything with socialism. No, yeah, exactly. And capitalism, American capitalism, has evolved so differently. And why that's the case yeah. is probably a different podcast altogether. Um, yeah. But I, I had one other question about um, Dutch insurance companies, Dutch insurers, and this mm-hmm. is a little more of a wonky question. Um, do do Dutch insurers bear risk in that? Like, let's say the members they cover end up being far more expensive than anticipated. Do those Dutch insurers um, lose all the money? Um, um, it's Well, in, if you have such a highly concentrated market, mm-hmm. my prediction, I, I've written articles about this, this stuff, my prediction is that we will enter sooner or later by relabeling it social health insurance because we have basically four conglomerates. And that's such an idiotic, uh, covering 90% of the market. Mm-hmm. That's such an idiotic oligopoly that you might as well t- tell them, as of tomorrow, you're not longer uh, risk-bearing, you're part of the social health insurance system, right. you will be administrative body, period. You do the contracts, but we settle what it is you have to contract mm-hmm. about. But we're heading into that direction. So they, they formally are risk-bearing. However, given their market positions, they can... They can increase premiums if they want to, and they have a very strong uh, position in bargaining with government over this income stream out of the income-related uh, contributions. Mm-hmm. And tax subsidies, for example, there's tax subsidies for uh, insured under 18 years old. They're paid out of general taxation. There is tax subsidy for a whole slew of things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's um, that's if you unravel how it works, both at the side of the health insurance, but also at the provision of care, there is a lot of non-private elements. Right, right. And maybe that's true yeah. for all, all systems in the world. There is no system that's apart from North Korea and Cuba again, perhaps, no system in the world that's really 100% private or 100% uh, public, doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can tell me if this characterization of the Dutch health insurance system is correct. Um, uh, but the way that I understand that it works, um, and this is in contrast to the American system, where mm-hmm. you have a private insur- you have private insurers, which you know don't actually have any kind of equalization fund across insurers; mm-hmm. they're just mm-hmm. completely self-sustained, yeah. um, taking on all the risk and also taking on all the profit. Um, so the Dutch insurance, you know, a large part of it is funded by. Uh, progressive, or you could say at least non-regressive mm-hmm. um, income taxes. Yeah. And that those go into a fund, mm-hmm. which equalizes across all the insurers to make sure that, you know, if this fund has a higher mm, burden of, of high risk enrollees or something, that that fund will get more money yeah. um, and that kind of thing. And so ultimately, it's sort of the government which yeah. manages the risk for the insurance companies. Is that exactly. more or less correct? Yes. That's right. 
yeah, that doesn't sound like a real private market too. Now, <laughs> your description of American uh, insurers who take on all the risk is a little bit exaggerated. They would rather not have you or me if we have a horrible disease or pre-existing condition. So if they mm-hmm. can, they will do everything right. to uh, yeah. keep those uh, insured out. Right. Good point. They're, they're not <laughs> legally allowed to. Uh, not yeah. accept certain patients, but we all know they try to find ways. The, the, apart from that, apart from sorry, don't do, do interrupt you. But, uh, apart from that uh, mechanism, that risk equalization between insurers, there's an additional um, mechanism, tax subsidies, to compensate um, insurers for very, very, very high uh, expenditure patients, people with chronic diseases that are you know hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. So that's already taken out of the pool. So sort of double pooling in in that sense. Right. That's uh, that's been proposed here sometimes. They call it reinsurance here. I, re- yeah. I remember John yeah. Kerry ran on reinsurance when he was running yeah. for president, which is the least sexy phrase, <laughs> and it's hard to yeah. most people to understand. Yeah. But I, it was a political and, issue here for a little while. Yeah, and, and I'll all, stick with those, <laughs> all of those mechanisms, they with good intentions. And so, if you think about how it would work in in practice, the first thing you say, oh, that's an invitation for gaming. I can dump all my high-risk patients. I'm, I'm ramping up their diagnosis. I pay doctors a little bit extra for, for getting a share of high. You only need, you don't need 100%, but you need a 2 or 3% margin over your competitors. So if you can relabel the diagnosis of 2% of your most elderly, frail uh, population, bingo, you're making a lot of money. And that's all those things are very hard to avoid or to, to, to even trace. So many of the things that we associate with, uh, I think when people hear this phrase, you know, the Netherlands has a private system, we think of a private market. And as you had just said, yeah. a lot of yeah. the way it works does not really resemble what we think of as a free market, yeah. right? No. Um, they, they're not. No, and all the, yeah, and all the, I have, I've also I've written about it, that there, in the end, if you say what came out of the um, new insurance law of 2006, um, we found a couple of things that are so striking that are really sort of worth, worth mentioning, perhaps. I mean, the, the first is people are not really that interesting to shop around for uh, a new insurance after the first year that interest dropped dramatically. Moreover, the only people who are shopping around are not our grandmas who need healthcare most. Actually, it's mm-hmm. the children who are just interested in cheap premiums, not in good quality healthcare. So the people who really need healthcare most and in, in the original conception of, of consumer driven care that they should be the one who were driving insurers to make sure grandma gets good healthcare they are the least mobile so yeah. it, it was highly predictable so people I feel don't like, like that it. also compromises the solidarity of the system if you know you allow no, people to yeah, yeah. so if you if, if there's all this all the all the options you do openings you give for risk selection people will embrace that and if you're an insurer, you know exactly that the 5% movers, these are the good risks you are trying to lure with free uh, membership of, of, of a health club, say. That's very attractive for young and healthy people. The grandmas not going to do that. And then let me, let me I, I wrote down a couple of those elements. What was the effects? Um, well, the cost control. We, we thought competition, uh, as in real markets, should help. But, well, actually, between four before in the early 90s, Holland and Switzerland both, where they have to, they went a similar direction. They took us on a similar model. There's some differences, but they both were at the very low end of spenders in, in healthcare. A share of population, about 8%. They were maybe you see the 
frugal Calvinistic culture. I don't know exactly, but there was a pretty good um, score in the uh, industrialized world. Ten years later, in both cases, we went up, and at some point, Holland became, this, after the United States of America, the second most expensive country in the world. So, uh. control, uh, <laughs> not quite. Do you think this is related to the increased competition that was allowed, or...? I don't know, or, or the, non the increased non-competition maybe, or the complexity, or the administrative complexity. Because, I mean, there were a couple of things. And because of the new model did away with some of the intermediary administrative models, some groups were able to greatly increase their incomes. For example, Dutch general practitioners are now the highest paid in the world. Mm -hmm. they, they get a lot of money because everything was paid for all of a sudden, and then they were dragging old ladies from the street to get give them a flu shot, and they would give they would get fifty dollars for that. I mean, uh, to to summarize what happened with all the behavior, but you could see there was the, the profit mark, the profit motive was creeping mm -hmm. in the whole system everywhere. Right. So cost control mm -hmm. out of the window. Consumers didn't like it. Consumers have very low uh, public trust in insurers. Uh, health sick funds were very popular. People were member of our sick funds, but now they have an insurance they don't care. Mm -hmm. So they they and they don't trust insurers. Um, the payments, yeah. The, yeah, the, 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 the delinquency uh, problem that hasn't been solved and it became so visible. It's not a big problem at all. I mean, if you only have, give, give me a country where you only have 1%, apart from Scandinavia, of course, 1% of non-insured. Um, and then there's another one, um, the, the case-based payments. We tried to introduce that. It was at the same time and that became a dismal failure because Holland didn't want to copy the payment models of the United States or Australia that were already in place, but we wanted to develop our own thing. And that meant that the uh, government delegated the development of DRGs, the, the diagnosis-based um, uh, tariffs, uh, delegated that development to individual hospitals. So after a couple of years and hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, if not millions of dollars, uh, subsidies for private um, consultancy companies, they, that resulted in 40,000 DRGs. Now, just imagine you're a hospital administrator and you say, oh, 40,000 years, how, how the hell are you going to administer that? It was a big disaster. And then they tinkered and tinkered and tinkered. And then one day, all of a sudden, the health ministry said, oh, yeah, well, we um, decided we're going to cut it down that number from 40,000 to 4,000. Still, 4,000 is a lot of DRGs. I mean, 90% of all the costs are, you could, you could cover that with, with, with about uh, less than 100 DRGs. But for 4,000, and now there was an old system before DRGs, then the 40,000 DRGs, then the 4,000 DRGs. So it drove um, hospital administrators crazy, uh, crazy. So that was another one. Still hasn't been solved yet. So we've been, I mean, and if you, that drawn out process of implementation and tinkering, tinkering, didn't make the whole model very um, popular also because it was mm -hmm. a bit of a game with changing goalposts. Mm -hmm. the, the, main, the main purposes changed over time. The goal of consumer choice and satisfaction, good quality, shifted to cost control, uh, sort of, and then less government intervention, uh, sort of, um, more to the market, the government could pull back, the market would do the job. Mm. And then uh, the latest one was, yes, it was the, the unfair difference between the public and private market that, that existed before. It was, that was a bit cumbersome, but it wasn't such un so unfair because basically 100% of the population was covered. So. In any case, that, that also in, in it, the it, um, what it was that that, that uh, reform wasn't clear anymore. And moreover, the legs that my last one, the current coalition doesn't mention the 
word competition or consumer choice anymore. They talk about regional collaboration, go back to the 1970s. So uh, people realize it wasn't such a big uh, success. And mm-hmm. it's, hard to, it's hard to admit failure if you are a politician. <laughs> yeah. And this kind of brings me to my, my next question. You know, we're 15 years after this major reform kind of yeah. combined the social insurance and the private insurance sectors. And we've seen that it's really not like panning out as maybe they had hoped. Um, are there um, any proposals currently in the legislature to change how the system works? Or what, I mean, what is the political discussion around um, the health insurance system today? I think it's dead. It's dead and buried, but it's a little bit like a zombie. It will come back because I guess that if we, we have always uh, coalition governments and then it's center politic with the right-wing parties or the left-wing parties, I mean, it's always for less than a years. And that also that endless uh, turnover in coalition governments has created a large degree of um, stability, uh, interestingly enough. No one is going way out of the uh, of, of line because they know four years later they may be kicked out and the other party will then. So it, it's, <laughs> it, looks, it looks chaotic, but it is sort of pretty stable politically speaking, apart from one of those little blips of extreme right-wing parties. But the, no one wants to burn... Uh, get burned again. It's like Clinton. You don't want to do Clinton all over. Mm-hmm. Um, so no one wants to look at the Clinton proposals that basically I thought were proposing German sick funds. Mm-hmm. If I read this whole 1400 pages of, of, of Clinton, that's interesting. That's just German sick funds of the 19th century. But no one wanted to do that. So I don't think there's currently very much taste for the restarting debate. But I know, of course, people are looking, informed people are looking at it as if it's, it's nonsensical that we are one of the healthiest people in the world, although we are following our, our um, US population in obesity and, and that mm. problem, but we are very healthy. Uh, why do we spend so much? And if you think that, uh, what it would be more effective as cost control mechanism? And sadly, um, all the evidence shows, whether all Dutch evidence in the last 50 years or, or other countries, cost control without pretty heavy government control is not possible. And if you don't have cost control, you really cannot really propose another model for the whole population. So I think cost control is a really essential one, but you need people who are having, you know, big, big um, whip to whip up people to behave properly and to control that. That's complicated. It's administratively complicated, but you do need that. You need, for example, some way of assessing capacities. How do you do that without a government? You don't do that. Not the way you would like to have capacity for the good quality nursing home care, for example. We have left that in the U.S. to the private market. Mm-hmm. In Holland, it was part of the public system for 50 years. So that's, that's another illustration that market can, can bring us cars and, and, and bicycles and, and a lot of fun stuff and, and expensive uh, computers. But the issue of how to allocate the pricing part of healthcare, I don't think that you can privatize. The, the provision, you can have a mix of public and private Actors, but I think the, the the financing. I don't see any example in the world where private health insurance insurance ever was a majority of a major financing uh, source. Yeah, and that kind of uh, I feel like you've almost answered the question I was just about to ask you, which is you know what what role does government have to pay play in order to achieve a universal, equitable, but also affordable healthcare system. And I think kind of one of the themes of what you've been talking about in, well, both the U.S., but also the Netherlands example is, um, you know, we may think if from our, you know, economics 101 that we learned in high school that, 
if you make something, if you add a profit motive to provide a service or a good, yeah. that somehow they'll, you know, try to do it more cheaply and gain customers and that that will somehow create efficiency. And yet the opposite seems to happen in healthcare, right? You actually end up with complexity, which drives up costs yeah. and the profit motive kind of backfires yeah. on us. Yeah. No, you, I, I agree with that. Is it nicer? Is it better? Is it cheaper for grandma? That should be our core question in healthcare, wherever. <laughs> I like that phrasing, actually. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't like when you say equitable has um, it's No, I think it's reasonable. Is it fair? Is it, is it decent? These are elements that I think are much more important. I don't care so much if you pay a little bit more or less than I do. That's not, I don't think that's not the essence. The essence is what, how do we safeguard for the people who need it most access to healthcare? Right. So I think our final question, unless Ben, you have anything else, um, you know, just to return to the discussion of whether or not like a Dutch system is a model for the US, you know, and I think that a reason for a lot of people who say like, well, we can't move to a Medicare for all system because it's not politically feasible, mm -hmm. maybe are missing, you know, all of the steps that we would need to take to get to even like a Dutch system um, and really assessing whether those are even politically feasible. So for example, I mean, you know, the Dutch system, we would have to institute a payroll tax, which would require people to start paying proportionally instead of a flat premium, which, you know, really um, wouldn't benefit people who are paying, uh, who have very high salaries and would really benefit people who have low salaries. Um, you know, we would have to like make, payouts to shareholders illegal um, and we would have to mandate all the benefits um, and we wouldn't be allowed, you know, in, in the United States, self-insurers, they can choose to leave out, they can, they don't actually have to abide by the ACA rules. And that's actually a huge portion of, of people who are insured today in the half, United States are insured. Yeah. yeah about half, half are insured. Employment-based, yeah. Um, yeah. Of employment-based are exempt from ACA standards. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and, and maybe like, for example, if, you know, if somebody doesn't pay, like Danny Denoyer's son didn't pay one month his premium, they would probably have to make some adjustments for like, can you just drop his coverage and drop everything he needs to survive? Um, you know, and these are, I mean, a lot of these things are, are just, I think, as politically difficult to pass as, you know, a Medicare for all system. So I guess the question is, you know, is, is the Dutch system really a model for the U.S.? Can we get to universal health care through um, maybe, maybe I feel we have to reframe that question a bit in saying, is the Dutch experience in the last 40, 50 years, is that relevant for the U.S.? And I would think it is, certainly, because all the elements we, we, we have, we have, combined all the blocks a little differently, but we share completely the elements. A majority of Americans want to have healthcare for all. It's hard. We have political barriers that are different from the Dutch barriers, but we, it won't happen so easily. But the elements of how to, what is the role of employers? If you historically in the 1950s and 60s, we didn't have the problems we had today that developed later on. So maybe we have to sit down with employers and say, well, we have a shared interest of keeping control and cost and having decent care for your employees. And then you, I mean, I remember Lee Jacocca, I remember that he was one of the first ones in the late 80s who stood up as a major employee that we need healthcare for all as an employer. So it's not as if it's an, we have to sort of think, what, how could you involve employers in continuing to provide healthcare in a way that's better for everybody? 
cheaper for everybody, better for everybody. There's lots of things you could do about that. If we were able, because ending private um, uh, group, group uh, um, insurance to employers has the problem that you don't have an alternative for 150 million people all of a sudden. That's, I, couldn't, I don't see that. So maybe we should short up and transform that gradually and meanwhile work at, at, at seeing what, what is it we can do with Medicare and Medicaid. Why don't, we, why don't we make them more similar? Why don't we define the entitlements in an exactly the same way so we can reduce administrative costs as an, ex as an, as an example? There are lots of things we can learn internally in the US if, if we take those five elements of the US healthcare system and then also look how did the Dutch or how did the Danish or how did they solve that particular issue? And luckily, even if we don't seem to be very interested in the rest of the world um, by now, but um, there are all those international organizations and, and networks of academics and, and they meet each other and they, they talk to each other. There is a lot of information. But like you are, are doing now, it's good to open a window and, and look at the, at the experience. Not so much because we want to translate or transform a complete model. That happens rarely in history, hardly ever. So that, that's really a warning more say we had we want to head in that direction, but we have to do it in a nimble way and not fall for the for ideas that seem good on paper, like the Ellen Enthoven's regulated competition, managed competition, right. yep. sort of oxymoron that's yeah. been luring, that's been traveling around the world after people in the US and the UK didn't want it. And then they tried to sell it elsewhere. But, but anyway, so we have to be careful in how we get there. Yeah, and I'm, I, this takes me back to at the very beginning when you were talking about your experience in government, just how large this, the players are and how powerful they can become in the healthcare system mm -hmm. once you have these really powerful hospital associations, insurance associations, and yeah. so on. Um, and I feel I, after my whatever 15, 16 years working in the Medicare for All movement, um, mm -hmm. I've just I've come to see it politically as kind of uh, the cost is kind of the, the most difficult political part that um, I see Medicare for All kind of as a, a major cost control proposal. And you're basically mm -hmm. talking about cutting funding to some chunk of these players, yep. right? Um, I mean, obviously, there's going to be winners and losers, uh, but the losers will fight it to the death. And that's true yes. whether it's Medicare for All or some other form of uh, effective yep. cost control in the healthcare system. Yep. Um, so I, that's probably something that we can all learn from, uh, you know, across countries. Um, mm -hmm. But there does have to be, and one of the, I think the reasons it's been so hard in the United States is there has not been a a significant, aside from Lee Iacocca, who you mentioned, you know, uh, steel magnate, we our car uh, car manufacturing car, magnate, yeah. we have not had a, a strong business voice for universal healthcare, um, which is strange. It's you, you'd expect yeah. that there, we would have seen it outside of the healthcare system, but I do think yeah. um, we're going to have to overcome those political barriers if we ever want this to be a functioning healthcare system that we can afford and that is moral and yeah. covers everyone. So. Well, the, 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 the tragedy is it's not a matter of affordability because we are so filthy rich right. that we can afford a lot of squandering <laughs> money. Yeah. So, and that's, that's really sad. That's ironic because we don't need that to. Mm -hmm. We could eliminate a lot of costs. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the hospital mergers, there's no evidence whatsoever that they have helped to reduce costs. So the efficiency of that, mm, uh, there's no real efficiency gain. So why do we allow all those mergers to become regional monopolies? Yeah, and I, you so mentioned this managed competition concept, which has come and gone. I don't even know if people hear this phrase anymore, um, but I do yeah. think occasionally people think that they can think their way out of this dilemma yeah. of 
Yeah. Uh, it's politically hard to do cost control. And they're like, well, we'll just come up with something really creative that yes. is, you know, yeah. politically palatable, but also controls costs. And it's, it's not that easy. And it doesn't tell you what it yeah. is exactly where you're trying to do. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank I you. I think the, the end result is just that there are no shortcuts, right. but <laughs> taking on these, these interests. So yeah. bring them in. Well, taking on it's then you are take, taking on the David, little David role. I think you need to, they, how can you create a sort of um, a forum for discussion where you are equal partners? You don't, employers are not going to go away. The need of having uh, insurance for employees doesn't go away one way or another. So whatever it is, they have to be part of that um, debate. Yeah, I mean, of course, Medicare for all is yeah. my sort of, yeah. is what I advocate for. But if, if I had to, ch I mean, if I got the choice, I would easily take a corporatist approach to it as well if that meant yeah. you know escaping what we have yeah. right now in the united yeah. states so would be better yeah maybe yeah, we can join all these eu treaties and then we'll be required exactly to, uh, <laughs> if we could be <laughs> uh, yes. exactly well yes. thank you so much for joining us and yes, thank we, you so much we only talked with you about the netherlands but we know you have a wealth of experience also yeah. about other international comparative about health yeah. policy I mean, even, so maybe we can pick your brain even, again in the future uh, yeah yeah, even Rachel Madoff is promoting her own book. So maybe you will allow me to say something that I did with a couple yes. of uh, colleagues. We did uh, write a book this year, okay. it came out this year, about the health reform um, efforts and, and outcomes for in 12 small nations across the world, ranging from Ooh. Singapore to, to New Zealand to Afri African countries in Ghana and in, in uh, Tanzania and Chile and uh, Ecuador. I mean, so we had a whole range of countries across the world, the East Africa, East uh, um, uh, European included. And the, the, what I found interesting writing that book is the diversity of all the arrangements, but the similarity of both policy ambitions, policy goals, but also the political type of problems. So at, at the level of how you implement the there's a lot we can learn from each other. And what's the name of the book? I'm, so interesting. I would love to read it. So. I'll show you. You do this. Hey? You can hold it yes. like that. Health, health reforms health across reforms, the world. Health reforms <laughs> across health reforms. the world. Anyway, we'll include a link in our podcast notes yes, for so it. Yes, so people can find it. So if, if y'all, if our listeners want to find it, then just go to the podcast notes and we'll have a link. There. All right. Thank, thank you, you again. Have a great one. Take care. Bye.